0: Hi everybody, welcome back to the War of the Ring. This is the Mythgard Academy class on the War of the Ring. And it's, oh yeah, four, number four! Session number four is tonight, because it's uh, March 14th, which means today. So yeah, James, I do, my, the problem, my, James, is that my pre-flight checklist changes, like, all the time. So that's, that's why I have, you'd think, like, I'd have gotten into a tolerably familiar routine by now, right? After doing this, uh, you know, in this location here for the last five years. But, you know, it's, uh, it's tricky. Um, okay, so welcome back, everybody. I'm excited. We're gonna tre- we're gonna do tree herding. We're gonna do rock climbing, uh, and <clears throat> if I do a good job, we're gonna get to some wonderful passages of Sam being awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask for your indulgence as I'm planning to do a little bit of fanboying later on this evening uh, when it comes to Sam Gamgee because I absolutely love Sam Gamgee in the first draft of the Eminem Mule Clift. Cliff scene, um, but um, anyhow. So, um, uh, so I'm gonna. Uh, several of you are referring to what I was just going to talk about, which is our exciting new website. Oh, it's so good! Where is it? There it is. Okay, finally, uh, after many years of needing it needing to happen, the new Mythgard Institute website uh, is up, and I am super excited about this. So, uh, the Mythgard, uh, website, now reliably (laughs) relevant again. Um, so that is really, really good. So just to kind of, uh, give you the, 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 the tour of the basics here, apart from just like, you know, admiring how cool it looks. Um, but uh, so, the, our Mythgard Academy stuff. You can see all of our Mythgard Academy things here. We click on the Mythgard Academy stuff. We always have the list of the current book here. Uh, all of the links for how to participate. All you know for so if you ever want to. Uh, you know, send somebody to like the YouTube channel to 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 specifically get the channels for the you know because it can be really hard. I have found it really hard sometimes, and I'm like, you should totally you know like, oh yeah, we we talked about that book in the Mythgard Academy. You should totally go look up those sessions. And I'm like, okay, here's what you got to do. First, you've got to search for the Signum University channel on YouTube, and then you've got to go to the anyway. It's really tricky, but anyway, here we go. One click uh, and to our uh to our uh, uh twitch channel as well, and of course you can see here all of our past classes. Look at this trip down memory lane. look at all these Tolkien books that we've done. Look at all these awesome non tolkien books that we've done. And Boethius at the bottom. I love that. Uh, and uh, I personally, instead of other books, I think this is just say and also Boethius at the end. I know bit of a bit of a departure. I know, but it was fun, anyhow. So uh, I, I'm just uh, I'm just loving the new site. One of my favorite parts of the new site. Is uh, the Join Us tab up here, where all of our uh, channels and everything are all uh, joined together? So we've got uh, we've got you can see all of our um, all of our moots, all of the the, 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 the upcoming events, and we're, we're going to be adding uh, more as we confirm dates and get everything set up for that. Um, you know, we've got again all links to all of our different channels just from right up here, our different podcast streams, uh, and the different uh, the different discussion options. So. Uh, the, so the, this is our discussion forums, of course, which are really great. And this is the Rumble chat. This is the chat that you guys have been using in uh, MythCard Academy stuff for a long time. So now we have lots of places you can click on here. So, Arthur, I know it's 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 sort of more clicks because it's not just on the bottom anymore. But this is your consolation, Arthur. It will always be there. Can you remember the number of times when like? When creating a page for one of the for the new book, we forgot to post the stupid bouncy link at the bottom of the page or it wasn't working properly or whatever. Um, so now the good thing is it will always be there. So there's that there and there's our forums here and there's uh, uh, and of course there's there's our twitch channel and you know, discussions people can have there at the same time. so all the stuff. Uh, I'm really, I'm really loving all, all of our film, film, film stuff, and our lotro page, which is just beginning. We're going to be building that out to talk about some of our uh, our other lotro things that are going on. So, anyway, this has been a project for a long time, uh, and uh, it has been a, a long time building and coming, uh, and I'm just uh, really glad that this uh, that this happened. So, anyhow. Uh, just to, just to draw your attention to the awesomeness there and how much uh, easier and more rewarding it is to direct people to org. so um, alright uh, but let's jump straight in because I have a bunch of things I want to get to <laughs> Tom I didn't see your comment before Tom was pointing out that uh, one day Boethius will be on the top you know as the wheel of fortune turns it's so true Tom uh, yeah. we can really rely on that kind of thing um Anyway, all right. So, uh, we almost got through talking about Saruman and the Palantir last time. Not quite. Uh, We were looking at, of course... uh, You'll remember that in the very first draft... Okay, the very first draft, the Palantir shatters as soon as it hits the ground. But in the second draft, uh, from the second draft on... Um, it was a seeing stone. And it was re- it's really interesting to see Tolkien sort of systematically exploring what does it do, right? First, it's just this sort of telescope thing, and Gandalf uses it right away, right? Because it's handy. Um, and it's, un- you know, it, uh, Gandalf is unser- uncertain. Tolkien seems uncertain as to whether or not uh, you can see back in it, whether it's a two-way device. Um, and I was really interested in the... Uh, Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. I am... Thank you, Tim, for pointing out that I'm doubled there. Oh, hang on. That's the wrong button. There we go. Okay. All right. No need to, to double me. Sorry, I had two images of myself on the Twitch channel so that it was like me and Mirror reversed me talking at the same time, which is a little bit freaky. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, see, see, James, like, I, every time. It's different every time. Like, I can't, I can't help it. Anyhow, um... So so yeah so we talked we we talked about how Tolkien himself was beginning to sort of explore and figure out what the palantir were doing and uh, and 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 the thing that was so interesting to me was to see how well, I okay how slow Tolkien was I don't mean to say that he was like being slow on the uptake but you know whether this was just something that just for whatever reason didn't occur to him or whether it was an idea that he actually was sort of resisting and trying to find ways around. Um, But how how odd it is that he had these two problems at the same time, right? What on earth does this Baldur, right? What is in fact the powers and functions of this of this of of these of this stone? And at the same time, what was the mechanism of communication between between Isengard and Mordor? Because there must have been one, but what could it possibly have been? Um, and how? Um, again, I don't want to read too much into it. I don't. Again, I don't want to go as far so far as to say. That he was loath to make that connection, but it almost looks as if he, as if he were right. Um, so anyway, that's uh, uh, the we had gotten the part, the element that we hadn't gotten yet is again uh, we were j- he was just beginning to play with the uh, the two way nature of the stone, right? The possibility of a two way nature, and we had that awesome. Uh, conversation, one side of a conversation which was between Gandalf and someone else who might have been Sauron. Remember where he was like, sorry, dude, gotta go. I'm busy over here. Right? (laughs) And he just, like, put Sauron on hold uh, on the Palantir. Uh, If that was Sauron that Gandalf was talking to, then... You know, in a kind of a low-profile way, that is like the most boss Gandalf conversation ever, and I absolutely love it. But anyhow, um, the major element that we hadn't gotten yet was Pippin, of course, and, and, and Pippin's link to the stone. So let's start when he begins to work that in. Then episode of Pippin and Stone. Gandalf says, this is how Saruman fell." He studied such matters. The old Farseers of the men of Numenor who made Amon-Hen and amon Hla, one in Hornburg, Osgiliath, Minas Tirith, Minas Morgul, Isengard, cha- uh, uh, Angrinost changed to Angost. That is how Saruman got news. Though Hornburg and Minas Tirith were dark, their balls lost or destroyed. But he tried to peep at Barad-Dur and got caught. Okay, so when... Tolkien decides that the stones are definitely going to be two way, right? So he now has has chose has definitely decided that the 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 palantir should be it should be a communication, you know, a, a, a two way communication device, and he fits this within the the scope of Numenorean technology, right? And we talked about that a little bit last time, uh, about how the Numenorians in Tolkien's initial conception are technologically advanced. They actually have, like, steamships and cannon and artillery, uh, and that's why they're able to... Uh, that's why there's just no contest when Arpharazan shows up uh, on the shores of Middle-earth to fight with Sauron. And that's why uh, Valinor itself is, in fact, under, in serious... Threat uh, because the Numenorians are just kind of on a different level because of their technological advancement. Anyhow, um, so yeah, so the idea that it's a technological advancement on the part of the Numenorians, um, and he points out, right, that, you know, the men of Numenor were far seers. This is true both in a sort of spiritual sense and, of course, also in the technological sense, as he recalls Emon Hen and Emon Khla, So there's some precedent for this kind of you know, sensory augmentation kind of technology, right, on the part of the Numenoreans. Um, So the Palantiri are going to be part of that uh, whole scheme. Um, I'm not sure about the Hornburg and Minas Tirith being dark. So, of course, that that there is going to be one at the Hornburg, or at, uh, you know, Angrinost, at uh, Angost, or, you know, anyway, Helm's Deep, right? Um, is uh, of course an idea that he's gonna that he's gonna move away from, um, uh, eventually. But uh, so those were lost, those ones. Why Minas Tirith? Why was the ball of Minas Tirith lost or destroyed? I wonder. Uh, I'm really not. Uh, I'm really not sure. I understand that one, but um, but anyway, it's. It's interesting to me that Pippin comes in, the episode of Pippin and the Stone comes in when Tolkien decides, A, that it's a two-way communications device, and B, that this was not only the mechanism of communication between Sauron and Mordor, but that it was the instrument of Saruman's fall. And notice, although... Yet again, he seems... Uh, he is slow to make that link between the Palantir and the mechanism of communication. As soon as he does make it, as like the instant he makes it, he associates it with Saruman's fall. Right, It becomes not just the way in which... Uh, Saruman communicates with his colleague from afar it also becomes the 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 thing that led to his fall and now Pippin is introduced as a kind of a buffer to prevent Gandalf from looking in it and using it as he did in the earlier drafts right um okay and then we get this is a fascinating uh uh passage i was i i, I love thinking about this so okay um very odd very odd how things work out Gandalf said "'But I begin now to wonder a little,' he stroked his beard. "'Was this ball really thrown to slay me, after all? "'Or to slay me if it might, and do something else if it missed? "'Was it thrown without Saruman's knowledge? "'Hm. Things may have been meant to go much as they have gone, "'except that you looked in, not me,' says, of course, Gandalf to Pippin. "'Hm. Well, they have gone so, and not otherwise. "'And it is so that we have to deal with it. "'But come, this must change our plans.' We are being careless and leisurely. All right, so... As soon as Gandalf figures out those things, right? As soon as he understands the nature of the stone, and not only the nature of the stone, but the role that it played in Saruman's... Not only in Saruman's, you know, tactics, right? In his communications, but but in his downfall. The conclusion that he comes to is... Maybe he meant it... be thrown, right? Maybe he was trying to, what, ensnare Gandalf, and that Pippin interfered unwittingly, right, with that stratagem. And then we have Tolkien, I love this, this is so unusual, right? Uh, Think of the number of times we've gotten something like this, that is, Tolkien's writing something like this and then glossing it in the margin, like exactly what he was thinking of and what he was getting at, right? Very, very rare uh, in these volumes so far. But anyway, against the paragraph beginning, very odd, very odd how things work out. My father wrote in the margin, no, because if Saruman had wished to warn Mordor of the ruin of Isengard and the presence of Gandalf and hobbits, he had only to use glass in normal fashion and inform Sauron direct but he may have wished, A, to kill Gandalf, B, to get rid of the link. Sauron may have been pressing him to come to the stone. So we see Tolkien kind of arguing with himself, right? So his first response, here is my attempt with all due and appropriate uh, qualifications and, and uh, 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 you know, protestations that I don't actually know anything Um this seems to be, as far as I can make it out here, Tolkien's train of thought, right? Gandalf says maybe he meant it to be thrown, right? Hoping he could kill me with it, or that Wormtongue would kill me with it, but at least if he didn't kill me, then he would at least expose me to it. Um, and then he says, no, wait, but if Sauron, if Saruman had wished to warn Mordor, he could have just done it, right? So, So that first thought while he was writing that paragraph, that speech by Gandalf, is he thinking that Gandalf is thinking that this is how Saruman was going to alert Sauron, which is actually pretty cunning and pretty devious, really, right? Um, Yeah, of course he could inform Sauron direct, right? But if he did, he'd have to fess up to it. I mean, that's a much more awkward conversation, you have to admit, right? If Saruman comes to the Palantir and he's like, hey, Sauron, uh, yeah, so uh, news. Uh, There was a battle and I lost and, um, you know, I didn't get anything. And, uh, you know, (laughs) everything I have is destroyed and I'm holed up in my tower and um, that's it. Right. You know, so like that's that would be an awkward conversation to have, right? So yeah, he could inform Sauron, but that would not be fun. However, if he if Gandalf looks into the stone, right? Well then what? Right? Then Saruman's off the hook. Then yeah, it shows that Saruman's been defeated, but um but you know, I mean that's that cat's gonna get out of the bag one way or the other, right? So better if Sauron's anger at discovering that gets vented at Gandalf instead of him, right? So better to inform Sauron figure it out himself, and in addition, that also lays a trap for Gandalf, so that Gandalf could be ensnared, and maybe Sauron will destroy him, and that'll be what Gandalf deserves too. So, it's really a much more devious plan on Sauron's part to chuck it, um, and then so then that that then that that third thought. So he seems to have that thought first and then says, no, 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 it'd be simpler. And then he's like, yeah, but third thought, right? He may have wished A, to kill, to kill Gandalf and B, to get rid of the link, right? He doesn't want to come back to the stone. He doesn't want to report back to Sauron. And if he doesn't have the stone, you know, then Sauron can't make him and he can't be tempted, right? And Gandalf could be ensnared. This is like a win-win-win situation. So, um, You know, I think that that's, um, a really interesting concept actually, right? The, the shriek of, I don't even know what, right? The shriek of outrage, despair, frustration, uh, fury, right? That comes from Saruman when he discovers that, you know, what exactly Wormtongue was using as a missile, right? Chucking at Gandalf, um... Is still in the text. It was in the first draft, and it's still in the published text, right? So, that would seem to suggest that Saruman was upset about that it was not, in fact, his stratagem uh, to chuck the Palantir out the window. Um, but, uh, but, I don't know, I guess he could have been acting. Um Yeah, Tom, definitely. Sauron's, why have you neglected to report for so long? Uh, Definitely does seem to me to support the notion that uh, Sauron had been pressing him to come to the stones. So yeah, that concept still seems to be enforced in the published text. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephanie, yeah, it's a great question. She asks, at this point, do the stones have any other power besides just being a seeing device? It's pretty unclear, right? I mean, the... Gandalf mentions that he thought that this, you know, could have been the cause of Saruman's downfall, but he doesn't really explain that. You know, I wonder, Stephanie, even just the, you remember that passage from last time that we were looking at, where Gandalf talks about how uh, he wants to be careful, like he doesn't want to make the Palantir too much like the Ring. Um, and that seemed to be one of the reasons why he didn't want it to be more than just like a local tool sort of thing, like I just, like, like I... A, a telescope to within a hundred leagues, um, because he didn't want it to be oriented towards Mordor. He didn't want it to to be ring-like in that way. Um, but Stephanie, the the fact that he's kind of putting the Palantir and the ring in the same category, right, seems to me to sort of suggest that the possibility of it having some kind of power influence or uh, ability beyond merely being a seeing instrument um, is at least sort of on the table right uh, it's not just neutral it seems that's why it's it's dangerous for Gandalf and we need to we need to, to sort of interpose Pippin right in the way okay um, this was not made uh, sorry then uh, then it was not made pippin hesitated by the enemy he asked at a rush no said gandalf nor by Saruman. it is beyond his art and beyond sauron's too maybe no there was no evil in it and it has been it has been corrupted as have so many things that have that remain Alas, poor Saruman, it was his downfall, so I now perceive. Dangerous to us all are devices made by a knowledge and art deeper than we possess ourselves. I did not know that any palantir had survived the decay of Gondor and and the Alendilians until now. Seven they set up. At Minas Anor, that is now Minas Tirith, there was one, and one at Minas Ithil, and others at Aglarond, the Caves of Splendor, which men call Helm's Deep, and at Orthanc. Others were far away, uh, were far away I know not where, maybe at Fornost and at Mithlond, struck out where Círdan harbored the something ships in the Gulf of Loon, where the grey ships lie. But the chief and master of the stones was at Osgiliath before it was ruined. Um, uh, he does use palantirs as the plural first, right, before he shifts to palantiri. Um, but, um, Dangerous to us all are devices made by a knowledge and art deeper than we possess ourselves. So, Stephanie, I come back to your question here, right? Um, does that just mean that as seeing devices alone, they're, like, more complicated and he doesn't understand how they work? So, um, you know, like, don't FaceTime on mommy and daddy's phone because you might do something that, you know, you don't hit the buttons because, you know, you don't know what they do. I mean, is thats is that... um is that the message here or is there an implication that it, it, there's more to it, right? Um, it does have more power. It has, uh, more reach beyond simply, um, beyond simply the, the being a, being a conduit for sight. And James, yeah, James Stevens points out that the, that idea of the chief and master of the stones, right? Um, chief and master in what sense, right? Again, um, that is starting to sound vaguely ring like right not exactly ring of power in the sense of master ring right uh you know like one palantir to rule the other palantiria or palantirs still sorry um i i i mean i, I don't i don't think it's it's quite like that but um but again yeah it it it's certainly introducing that concept of hierarchy would seem to at least invite that possibility um by the way Many of you may remember, so if you're, if you're thinking about stuff that he wrote in that essay on the Palantiri um, in, that get, got published in Unfinished Tales, don't forget that that's written after the publication of The Lord of the Rings. So we're talking 10 years, more than 10 years, uh, between when he wrote this and when he wrote that, right? So that is him bringing together, uh, you know, after mature consideration uh, things many years later. Uh, just to, just to make sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, yeah, Arthur, you're sure right that things made by Feanor seem to have a habit of making people want them. Uh, yes. Uh, now he does suggest, you've mentioned Feanor, I don't think I quoted the Feanor uh, passage, um, that the initial concept was that they were of Numenorean design, right, on the uh, you know Amon Hen model, right, or using the sort of the amon Hen technology, whatever that was. Um, but uh, um, he does shift to Feanor, right? The idea of, uh, or at least Gandalf, floating the possibility of Feanorian origin of the Palantiri, right? Um, that does happen relatively quickly, so he does abandon. Uh, Abandon the idea of Numenorean workmanship. And that really just seems to emphasize the thing that, you know, the alas, poor Saruman sentiment that Gandalf expresses in that paragraph, right? Um, A knowledge and art deeper than we possess ourselves. Not only is the knowledge and art that made the Palantiri, uh, uh, you know, deeper um, than... He possesses. He doesn't even possess the knowledge of how deep it is, right? And whose knowledge it was in the first place, exactly. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's as far as we get with the palantiri. We're getting pretty close, right? To where, uh, you know, we you know we 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 have gotten pretty close to the final concepts of the palantiri. Um. Really interesting to watch that develop. Couple passages on the ends. I sort of skipped over these and I want to... Okay, actually, hang on. Never mind. A couple other comments, then I'll move on to the answer. Um, Mike asks, there was no evil to begin... There was no evil in it to begin with. Is there evil in it now? Yeah. It has been corrupted. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. Just like there's evil in, for instance, the Dwarf Rings of Power, right? Um, uh, they, they've been corrupted. Um... Uh, you could say maybe that's not a good idea, or that's not a good example, because they were corrupted from the beginning. Possibly, though, actually, we'll have something to say about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, the suggestion, Mike, is that there is evil in it now. It has been actively corrupted by Sauron, so that the use, the use of the Palantir, is now dangerous. Not just because you might be suddenly FaceTiming Sauron, right, um, and not be quite ready for that you know, uh, tete-a-tete with the Lord of Darkness, but um, that it itself has now an unwholesome power. Um, And I think that's still operative in the published text, frankly. I think we can see that with Denethor. Right? Um, Yes, Sauron deceives him, but it's more than just that. His temptation to look into the Palantir, the the kind of impact that the Palantir has on him, um, it has an unwholesome effect. Even beyond simply what it Makes him see, and the sort of conclusions that he uh, that he draws from that, right? So yeah, I, there's there is some corruption involved there, uh, Mike. Um. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent example. Tom Hillman says, think of the effect of Denethor's immolation on the Stone of Minas Tirith, right? The Stone of Minas Tirith has changed um, by being burned with uh, uh, with Denethor on the pyre. Um, so yeah, we can see that they can sort of bear and retain the the, the imprint right, of these kinds of things. So yeah, they're definitely influenceable. Right? Um, yeah, and Tony, I agree. You look at the effect it has on Aragorn. Aragorn, when he descends from the Hornburg after having wrestled with Sauron... On the one hand, he's kind of, you know, all tuckered out because it was, you know, tolerably exhausting, right, to to wrestle in mind and will with the Dark Lord. Uh, uh, or, but it wasn't... I don't think it was just that either. You know, in wrenching the stone to his will, he's reclaiming it, right? He is, through the force of his own will, sort of undoing that corruption, making it okay for him to use. It's a complicated moment, right? And it definitely... Uh, um it definitely takes something out of him. Yeah, you're right, he's not corrupted, Tony. He's harmed. Um it, it 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 does take a lot out of him to do not just through the Palantir, that is, confronting Sauron himself, but to the Palantir. Um he has to wrench it to his will. Remember how when he, he talks about that, he then says, after he'd done that, right? Then he saw many things. Right. So he's able to use it and he's able just to sort of gain, you know, good, usable sort of neutral information from it. But first he has to wrench it to his will. He's got to something's been done to it and he's got to do something back to it in order to make it work right again. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. um, Yeah. So Denethor gets corrupted. Aragorn doesn't get corrupted. But we I think we can see that there is this sort of corruptive power that they do definitely have. But as I said, I skipped over some end passages. And we can't skip over end passages, so I've been pushing these back for like four weeks now. Look at this, all the way back to page 30. Um, <laughs> okay, let's meet Bregalod? right? How do we meet Bregalod? We meet Bregalod as the messenger. He gets sent as the messenger from Treebeard, so he, he hails them, uh, Théoden and Gandalf and the army, as they're leaving Helm's Deep and going to Isengard. I am Bregalod Quickbeam, answered the Ent. I come from Treebeard. He is eager for news of the battle, and he is anxious concerning the horns. Also, he is troubled in his mind about Saruman, and hopes that Gandalf will come soon to deal with him. Added, there is no sign or sound from the tower. Gandalf was silent for a moment, stroking his beard thoughtfully. Deal with him, he said. That may have many meanings. Changed to, that may have more meanings than one. But how it will go, I cannot tell till I come. Tell Treebeard I, that I am on the way and will hasten. And in the meanwhile, Bregalad, tell him not to be troubled about the Huorns. They have done their task and taken no hurt. They will return. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, the... <laughs> Arthur, you do this to me all the time. Where I, I'm like, oh, Arthur has it. A... No, he doesn't. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Um, But I agree that Elendilions is a really cool word, right? I kind of skipped over that, but that's a really fun word, right? Uh, Gondor and the Elendilions, uh, uh, the descendants of Elendil. That's pretty cool. Um, I don't ever remember seeing that word before. Okay. First of all, how awesome is it that when we first meet Quickbeam, he's not only carrying a message, but what's his message? His message is. Treebeard says, "Hurry up! Make haste! Right? Don't delay!" And that, come on, that's funny, right? That's classic. That's great. Um, but um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, the concern that the Ents have for the Huorns is touching and interesting, right? Um, I mean, it, it's it's kind of. It's kind of funny, right, on the one hand, is that, you know, we have this, like, huge army of, like, monster trees who have come and Brego is all like, the monster trees weren't harmed, <laughs> were they? Uh, you know, they're, they're, but uh, they're tree herds, right? So, you know, it all, it all makes, uh, makes perfect sense. Um, tell him not to be troubled about the Huorns. They have done their task. Uh, and this reminds us, of course, that Gandalf has recruited them. Right, uh, that treebeard has lent them, and he hasn't just sent them; he has lent them to Gandalf. Right, he is, he has uh, given them sort of into Gandalf's care, and Gandalf responds in um, responds in, in kind. Right, he responds appropriately to that. Uh, don't worry. Right, uh, I'm going to return your hooorns without a scratch on them. Uh, they did great, uh, and you can have them back. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm sort of joking about that, but but th- that is sort of the tone, and I think that that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, There's another thing I was going to talk about here. Oh, yes, the dealing with him, right? Deal with him. Um, that may have more meanings than one, right? And here we see Gandalf. Uh, I really like the idea that... Um, I really like the idea that Gandalf is here mulling over. We see Gandalf mulling over what he's going to do with Saruman, right? And he's acknowledging that there are a couple ways that this could go, right? Is he going to have to, you know, deal with him in like, you know, the Jimmy Hoffa sense? Or is he going to have to, is he going to deal with him in a different way, right? Um... And the, the fact that Gandalf himself seems to be sort of contemplating whether he's contemplating, I'm not sure which way this is going to go or whether he's saying, I'm not sure what I want to do, right? We don't really know. Um, but I but I like that. Um, one other really small thing jumped out at me from this passage. Several of you are pointing to uh, uh, the sci fi lawyer up there in the Twitch chat uh, mentioned it. Um, Arthur was just mentioning it. Um, the eagerness of Treebeard, right? Seems like a very unentish or at least untreebeardish thing to be, right? He's eager. But uh, he is eager for news. Now, Let's play a game. Who says that line and where in the published text? Do you remember? I'll give you a hint. The tense is different. It's he was eager news. He was eager for the news. Uh, Do you remember who says that? Close, close, Arthur. It's not Gandalf about Saruman and Isengard, James Liebach has it. It's Treebeard about Saruman. When tree, in many partings, when uh, they get to Isengard and they meet with Treebeard, and he's telling him about Saruman, right, and about how he gave, he made sure that Saruman heard all the news, right? Um, and although he hated the news, he was eager to have it, right? Um, I don't think that that's a coincidence. This idea, uh, like, because we've got Treebeard, Saruman, Isengard, and eagerness for news. Right? Now, how these things all get kind of sorted together in the sentence that makes the published text is very different. Right? It's a different person being eager for news in a different context and everything. But um, I I bring it up because it just it strikes me as another really wonderful example, and I've said this before. Tolkien is so conservative. He is such a waste not want not kind of author, right? Almost everything that he writes. I mean, he he rarely just chucks anything. Um, and this like that somebody is in in Isengard, eager for new. So like you know, we get to to the the, the second meeting. Right, the second return to Isengard at the end and this like being eager for news uh is still like in the air, right? His brain immediately goes back there. Um I just again it's 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 a really small point. I'm not trying to say there's anything super significant about that. Just as another an illustration of this tendency of Tolkien's mind. Why why invent a brand new line when you can pull out of your memory a line that you already used but decided to cut somewhere else, right? Even if you've got to shift it around, even if you use t- totally change the meaning of the sentence, right? Put it in a different person's mouth, um, make it mean almost the opposite of what it meant in the in the original text, it's all good, right? Uh, but... But he still he still just does that kind of thing. And yeah, Tomás, exactly. It's the same thing he did with names, right? Uh, we, he, uh, it's not that he will never cut anything, but he almost never throws things away, <laughs> right? Even the, the things that end up on the cutting room floor are all carefully swept up and kept in a drawer of his mind, right? To be brought out again uh, uh, at need. Uh, and again, I, just, I think that's a pattern that we can see again and again in his writing, and I find it uh, charming. I find it really fun. Okay. Aragorn and Gimli are told about Orc Raid and Treebeard. This is, of course, one of the outlines. Merry gives, uh, gives up hope of describing them. Says, you will see them soon. How shall I describe them to Bilbo? This was when he first tried to collect his ideas. Describes destruction of Isengard. Saruman, not strong or brave, Merry tells all he knows about the battles of Ford. How trees dogged orcs, Treebeard knocks on gates of Isengard. Arrows no good. Saruman flies to Orthanc and sends up fires from floor of plain. Scorched Ents go mad, but Treebeard stops them. They let in Isen River by North Gate and flood the bowl. Terrific fume and steam, terrible noises, drown wolves and slaves and smiths. The Ents pull the wall to pieces. They send galbadiers talking trees, to help Gandalf. They bury dead at fords. Okay, so this is the first outline of the of the destruction of Isengard, uh, and of course one thing that we notice here, as we see in many uh, other places, um, is uh, th- we, we see how fully the, 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 the key elements uh, emerged, right? Um the ents ripping through the walls of isengard the ents inability to get into the tower the fires of isengard right uh as uh, saruman sends up his fires uh the flooding of the bowl from the isen rivers uh, from the isen river all those things are in his mind there from the uh from the beginning um but there are a few really interesting points here. Um, but, Stephen, I was thinking the same thing Stephen covers. You know, trees dogged orcs. Uh, you know, an entire sentence consisting only of creature names. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that is real. I was thinking about that, too, Stephen, when I was reading it. Um, and no, uh, Mike, the dead at the Fords are the dead Rohirrim. Uh, um remember the graves, right, that, you know, uh, Theoden thinks that the crows are feasting on his brave men, right, who died at the forts, and Gandalf is like, no, no, they're good. Um, in the published text, of course, it's some of the men of some of Urken, of Erkenbrand's uh, men that he sent there to, to make the burial. Uh, in the earlier draft, and this is not the only reference we've seen to it, it's um it's it's Ents. He sends some of the Ents uh, to make the burial. Um, yeah um good more um the probably the one element that was most fascinating to me in this passage is uh, um the galbadiers thing right how uh first of all how it it means talking trees right uh or at least it's explained as talking, glossed as talking trees. So that's what horns are. That's the definition of horn or something, right? Um, I mean, the horns, this is what, that's how Bregelad and Gandalf had been talking about, you know, the the great wood that uh, comes to High Dunsinane Hill, right, during, uh, during the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, but now, they're being described as talking trees. The talking trees that are going to help Gandalf. So that... I get talking to the Ants, presumably, right? Um, as we never hear any of them talking in a way that anybody else can understand. Um, and Tomas, I'm not really sure how they're different from the ants exactly. Um, Tomas is asking, are they talking but not walking? Well, they're definitely walking, right? I mean, they came to Helm's Deep. Um Walking but not talking is what I would have guessed, right? At least not talking in, uh, as anyone but the ants can understand, but maybe that's what's being referred to here. Tony, I wonder if they're a subset of Huorns. Maybe they are, right? Maybe the Galbadiers are the, like, leaders of the Huorns or something, but it doesn't sound like that. They send Galbadiers to help Gandalf. Sounds like it is the Huorns, right? But it, that's a, just a different name for them, you know, in a different language but Talking Trees. Um, And of course, I couldn't help but remember um, I I couldn't help but remember Old Man Willow, right? Um, And Old Man Willow's Tom Bombadil talking about him being a mighty singer, right? And how his song goes through all of the old forest um, through the whole Withywindle Valley. Um, Is that the kind of thing we're talking about, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Julie, I agree that the Galbadiers are wakened trees, not sleepy ants. That would certainly seem to be, seem to be the case. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, no, see, Old Man Willow doesn't weep. He makes other people weep, right? No, Old Man Willow doesn't talk, but he sings, right? Um, I mean, he is even... Even in the scene as it's described, like, not just Tom Bombadil talking about Old Man Willow later on, but even in the scene, um, and I'm thinking, of course, in particular, of Old Man Willow's response to the fire, right, when uh, Sam and Frodo set fire to the side of him, and he... they hear this, like, whispering, right, sound... Uh, as all the like, branches and leaves all rustle together and it spreads right and 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 you know so it's like this communication seems to be a form of communication all around them right and yes steven sam seems to be able to not only perceive that old man willow is singing but knows what it's about right hark 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 it's singing about sleep now exactly exactly um yeah. See, I know, several of you are trying to sort of make distinctions between the Galbadiers and the Huorns, but I'm not sure that that concept, like that the idea that the Galbadiers are different from the Huorns, is really supported here. They send Galbadiers to help Gandalf. That's the Huorns, isn't it? Right? I mean, I, I, conceivably, I could imagine the Galbadiers being, uh, you know, sort of speaking of them in a sort of uh, like, using synecdoche, right? Um, uh, you know, just as one would say, um, you know, Aemir went to intercept the orcs as they returned, you know, from the east, Yeah, and he did go, right? But, of course, when you say that Eomir went, you mean Eomir and his entire Aeorid, right? So maybe when they say they sent Galbadiers, they meant, you know, so they sent the Galbadiers and, like, all the horns that are with them as well, right? So it's used, you know, as synecdoche. I could just believe that that was a possibility. But even there, I don't see any... uh, any real clear sense that um, that's necessarily true. I mean, again, I, I, could, I could be led to believe it, but uh, but I, it doesn't seem to me compelling. It seems much more likely that Galbadiers is just a synonym for Who Warns. One other item from this passage that struck me as very interesting, and which almost surprises me is cut from the final version is the reference to Bilbo. We get the struggle, right? Um, Marion Pippin's struggle to describe the ants. Um you know, I don't know, they say as they're trying to put you know, to explain, to describe what their eyes looked like and all those other things and what it was like. Um but, um, anyway, so we have them struggling to describe it. I love the fact that when I'm like, How shall I describe them to Bilbo like Bilbo's gonna ask, right? I'm gonna have to you know, it's gotta go in the book, but i don't I don't know how I'm gonna re- relate that back to Bilbo. Just the fact that they're thinking of Bilbo uh, and not only thinking of Bilbo, but thinking of. Themselves as characters in the book, right? We do get that in chapter three, right? In the Orikhai chapter, right? When Merry says to Pippin that he'll get almost a whole chapter in Old Bilbo's book, right? So it's not that we totally lose this concept of them recalling uh, uh, Bilbo and his book, but you know, maybe they just he just decided to shift it back there and and therefore, since he'd already brought it up, lose it here. But, um, but I, I don't know. I like how shall I describe them to Bilbo? All right. The Ornomi were coming. That is what the Ents call them in their short language, which seems to be an old-fashioned Elvish. Trees with voices, it means. And there is a great host of them, deep in Fangorn. Trees that the Ents have trained so long that they have become half Entish, though far wilder, of course, and crueler. So here we have another name, the Ornomi. Uh, And and more description, more about the Huorns. So this would... uh, would seem to suggest um, as uh, uh, who was it was talking Julie right yes Uh, Julie this seems to confirm what you said before right Uh, that they are trees that are getting entish not entes that are going treeish right and this would seem to confirm that Um, and we have this being something initiated by the entes right the entes have trained them for so long that they have become half entish Though far wilder, of course, and crueller. Um, and remember when Treebeard talks about this, um, in chapter four, you know, the sheep get like shepherd and shepherds like sheep. Um, passage. It's mutual. Right, and he emphasizes the mutualizes. That kind of thing is going on all the time, right? As if, in some sense, and trees are kind of this sort of floating population, right? And there's, you know, kind of traffic both directions across that boundary between ent and tree. Um, almost implying or suggesting as if, like, I mean, I don't know that he's actually so... Um, um, that he's positively implying that they can just switch over, right? That, like, some of the people at Entmoot used to be trees who have become so uh, so Entish that they're now officially Ents, right? I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily true, um, but he doesn't explicitly say, I mean, again, he suggests sheep get like shepherd and shepherd get like sheep, right? That sort of thing is happening all the time. Um, but the interesting thing to me that's different here. Than that passage, album, the the sheep and shepherd passage, is the wildness and even cruelty of the horns is mm, okay. I'll just say what I'm thinking, even though I think it's not quite fair or not quite right. But it almost gives a kind of mad scientist element of what the ants do to the trees right? That having meddled with the trees, having done what they did to the trees, they created something different and wild and cruel, right? That by by talking to the trees, by training the trees, they have, on the one hand, made the trees half-entish, but it's not necessarily the good half of the ants, right? Um... Because they're trees and not ants, they're much wilder, of course, given, right? And crueler, right? That it's part of, it's part of what, it's part of what they are, right? Remaining trees, even they're half-entish, but but the other half is still wild, right? It's still sort of uncontrollable. Um, it does start to sound a little bit like a Doctor Who episode, Tom. I agree. I agree. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, right? I mean, it, it, like, cruel? I mean, if they're crueler than ants, does that suggest that it was a bad idea to wake them up? That by waking them up and, like, unleashing them, you know, they've done harm? They, the ants, have done harm? You know, I I don't know if I want to quite go that far, but again, we have old man Willow, Right? If somebody woke up old man willow and uh um you know if he is the result if he is one example of what a half entish tree looks like you got to think maybe the ants didn't do anybody any favors right worked out at Helms deep but um uh but remember that's a thing that happens it's it is a thing that happens more than once that by its own weapons is the enemy worsted right Uh, so, um, uh, that's, of course, thinking about the Pads of the Dead later on, um, that Shades of Fear could be, uh, fighting for the good guys against the enemy, but, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Rachel, that is, that is a very sensible follow-up question. Rachel Draper says, does that mean that trees are naturally cruel? Um, You know, Rachel, think back to the description of the old forest, right? The trees in the old forest are mean, right? Now, look, they're in a struggle for life, right? I mean, it's part of being wild. To be wild is to be incompetent. How do trees act in the wild, right? Trees aren't kindly in the wild. They're not kindly to other trees, right? Are they? No, they're not. What do they do to other trees, right? Right? Crowd them out and take all their sunlight so that they wither and die, right? Never a second thought, never a by your leave, right? It's a tree, tree world. <laughs> it absolutely is, Tony, right? And, and yeah, they, they, and as far as their competition with like the things that walk about hacking and, and killing and all those things, right? They have no patience for those at all, right? Yeah, I mean, I was. Um. When we were talking about the old forest descriptions in exploring *The Lord of the Rings*, I was suggesting there. I think that that passage is a really important thing for us to remember, um, both in thinking about hobbits and in thinking about trees. It's not all like Tolkien is pro nature and he's pro tree, but he's not. Uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it's not all fun and games, right? Um. Yes, nature can be red in tooth and, and red in root and twig, right Mike exactly yeah, um exactly, exactly. and Tomas, yeah, the hobbits were competing for resources with the trees, absolutely yeah, the farmers and the the farmers in the forest can't be friends um but uh, but yeah, but they're so they're fighting back. that's what they do. That's what it means to be wild, and they're willing. To apparently to be cruel, so you you wake them up, right? You teach them to talk. You let them walk around. What are they going to do? Well, now they are walking around, right? Now they can now they they can go about like those you know two legged creatures can, and uh, they can do some of their own hacking and hewing. So uh, it's it's um, yeah, and Tony, that's a really interesting parallel. Uh, uh, Tony is thinking about the the unleashing of the power of the river to flood Isengard, right? Seeing the trees as a force of nature uh, in that way, and uh, you know the force of nature, you know, is wild but also cruel, right? Look at hurricanes. I mean, that's, uh, um, yeah, wild, cruel, looks cruel, right? Uh, so yeah, that's definitely part of the part of part of the world. So it's interesting his the, this view of not only of Huons, but even events. Uh, huorns, not Huan's. that's different, uh, of Huorns, uh, uh, and it is is not, well, I was going to say Rosie, though that seems like an Entwife reference, but anyway, one more ant passage. I do not know who is more, most surprised at their meeting, Gandalf or Treebeard. Gandalf, I think, for once. This is still the Hobbits, of course, telling the story. Uh, for from a look he gave us when we first met, I have a fancy Treebearded spotted Gandalf in Fangorn, but would not say anything even to comfort us. He had very much he had uh, uh, very much to heart the Elvish saw of Gildor's do not meddle in the affairs of wizards for they are subtle and quick to wrath. But Gandalf knew Treebeard was on the move," said Gimli. He knew there was going to be an explosion, but not even Gandalf could guess what was going what it was going to be like," said Merry, changed to Pippin. It has never happened before, and even wizards know little about Ents. Right yeah, so even Gandalf was so Gandalf who knew that the explosion was coming um, uh, did not expect it to look like it did, right? Um, first of all, I love the idea of Treebeard having really taken to heart, you know, uh, uh, that old elvish saw of Gildor's do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, right? So he's not going to say anything even to comfort them, right? Um, even Gandalf could not guess what the explosion of the Ents was going to be like. Um. So this idea again of the the wrath of the Ents, the this the the Ents is a force. You know, when you actually, you know, let the wildwood demons out, right? When the when the force of nature is just unleashed, it is unpredictable and savage. And you know what that makes me think of? What Saruman said. Right? Um, it is wayward and senseless. That's not quite true. He's not being fair to the ants when he says that. But, you know, he's not totally wrong when he says that. Um, he's a little unkind, calling them the wild wood demons, but, you know, they could. The Rohirrim could find the trees at their own door next, right? Not unprovokedly, not, it's not actually senseless and wayward. Um, they're not going to come stomp on the Rohirrim for no reason. I mean, they haven't come to Isengard for no reason, but if the Rohirrim did that, right? If the Rohirrim went to Fangorn and started cutting down a whole bunch of trees. Yeah, sure. The answer would be at their doorstep next. um, it's not fair to say that they're uh, wayward and senseless but it is fair to say they're not all together on your side you know right uh so anyway i think that it's uh it's interesting to see uh i i i was uh i was i was interested in kind of hearing the echo of saruman's later later speech there all right well speaking of being on the move We're doing awesome because we're almost to the cliff. So we're jumping ahead to book four, except we're not exactly jumping ahead. We're still on the near side of the gap. This is one of the big gaps in composition. Um, The first gap is at the end of the Return of the Shadow, right? When he gets to the tomb of Balin in Moria and then he stops writing for a while, Right, he stops writing here. He leaves Frodo and Sam on the cliff, right? Um, for a long time, for like a year and a half, actually. Then um, this is a year and a half in the middle of uh, in the middle of, of World War Two, right? It it doesn't really seem to me to take a whole lot of explanation as to why he, uh, you know, sort of abandoned things at this point. Um, but um, anyway, uh. So I want to talk about the cliffs and what we see in, in the descent from the cliffs with just some some interesting stuff there. But I wanted to first to just touch on that one little set of notes. It's in the footnotes. It's not in the main text of the chapter. So if you're not being assiduous about going and looking at the, the end notes to the chapter, uh, you uh, you might have missed it. But if so, you missed something kind of spectacular. So... He's just jotting notes in the margins, right? And he makes two notes. Th- well, there's four notes. The fourth one after the fourth one is about chronology, but the first and the third are just about some continuity issues, right? One, account of rings in chapter 2 ancient history needs altering a little. It was elves who made the rings which Sauron stole. He only made the one ring. The three were never in his possession and were unsullied. Now you may remember that that idea he first had, when, you remember when that happened? When did he decide that the elven rings had not been made by Sauron? That was the original thing, right, back at the Council of Elrond. Elrond, qui- you know, uh, uh, quietly explains how the elven rings were made by Sauron, right? Um, and of course, then says that they're not, they're not around anymore, right? Um... Do you remember when he changes it? He changes it when he gets to Galadriel, right? When Galadriel suddenly explodes as a character, and he decides that she has an elven ring, then he says, mm, "Yeah, okay, the elf rings, the three elf rings, uh, they're not they're not made by Sauron, they're unsullied, they're they're not in his possession." So nothing in that note is new. Um, he's had this idea before. He just seems to be, this seems to be a like, yeah, note to self, got to remember to go back and make that adjustment from earlier on because it was quite advanced in the telling of the story. He'd already done... How many versions you know of Chapter Two uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring? Uh, by the time he got to here, there's like at least five versions already. So, okay, got to remember to go back and put that in. Then the third note, similarly, the company must carry ropes either from Rivendell or from Lorien, right? So we've had no reference to ropes in either place. Uh, in Rivendell, Sam doesn't realize that he didn't bring a rope and regret it. And in Lorien, there there are no ropes in the boats, right? So we get there's there's no rope references. Until we realize we need a rope, right? So now they're on a cliff, and they they really want he really wants them to have a rope. So he just makes a very sensible kind of note, like you do as a writer, right? I got to go back and give him a rope because I want him to have a rope when they get to this point. Um, and then in the middle of it, out of freaking nowhere, Tom could have got rid of the ring all along, if asked, <laughs> without further something or other. Tom Bombadil could have gotten rid of the ring all alone if they'd all along if they'd asked him what <laughs> what first of all, where on earth does that come from? what what gave him that idea? I mean like, you know again like the the ring's okay fine you know the rope's relevant to what he's currently writing. Tom Bombadil could have destroyed the ring or got rid of it. I'm not quite sure exactly what got rid of means in this context. Made disappear, destroyed. Um, you know, could he vanish it in some way? Like, more permanent-like? Um, uh, I... <sighs> I have no idea what this means. And then, if asked exclamation dash if asked exclamation point right. So, like, what are we gonna if, are we gonna get this in reveal at the end right? Are they gonna come back by Tom bombido and have Tom Bombadil be like, oh yeah, if you had just mentioned it way back in chapter seven, I could have just taken off the you know taken the ring away and it would have been fine, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> it kinda makes me think of. You know, Glinda the Good Witch coming in and saying, you've had the power to go home all the time, right? Uh, which just seems like an extremely irritating thing to say. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's... Wow, I just... Um, uh, I don't know. I, I can't even... I can't even. Like, I don't even know what's more shocking. What element of that statement is more shocking? The fact that he can destroy the ring? Why? Like. like What has possessed Tolkien to go there? Why is he even thinking of Tom Bombadil? And why on earth is he contemplating giving Tom retroactively the power to to get rid of the ring? And just, uh, you know, because it's like, oh, well, you didn't ask. I thought, I mean, oh, man. Um, uh, Yeah, so, um, I... (laughs) Just This might be that note number two in this little list. And I was thinking about this. That might be my candidate for most shocking thing I have read in the history of The Lord of the Rings so far. I mean, of all of the, like, revelations that we've seen as we've read through this carefully, and as I've said, I've never read these books cover to cover to cover before. You know, I've, I've, I've read around in them, and I've looked stuff up in them, and I, I've read them at, at various points, but just sitting down and going through chapter by chapter the way that we've been doing, I've never studied them like this before. Um, I can't remember being so floored by any single sentence in the history of the Lord of the Rings as I was by that. I just, uh, I don't even, I I got nothing. I have no idea what to say. Uh, But, um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out if this would help or hurt the case. Of the people who argue that Tom Bombadil is useless and should have been cut, I know there's some Tom Bombadil haters out there, uh, but uh, uh, you know I don't know if the Tom Bombadil hate this would make the Tom Bombadil haters if if this would give them any pause or if this would just make them hate him worse. Um, but um, who? So yeah, I mean, it's I'm I'm not sad that this idea didn't go any further than this, uh, but I am just. I guess one of the morals of the story is if you think you are in reading through these books, if you think you're, you're like beginning to get like in touch with how Tolkien thinks, uh, (laughs) maybe we still have something to learn. Uh, I suppose anyway. So yeah, I, I, I got nothing else. I just wanted to marvel at that with you for a moment, but let's, let's get to the Eminuil, or whatever they're called. What we're calling those hills changes constantly. And you remember—you may remember that was already happening. Back in the multiple revisions of the breaking of the Fellowship chapter, that whole area got named and renamed and renamed like a hundred times. So um, I'm just going to call them the Eminwil because that's what they're called in the published text. So anyway, we are above the dead marshes that lie between Enduin and the pass into Mordor, said Frodo. We have come the wrong way. We, changed I, should have left the company long before and come down from the north, east of Sarngebir and over the heart of Battle Plain. But it would take us weeks on foot to work back northward over these hills. I don't know what is to be done. What food have we? Shift into outline form. A couple of weeks with care. Let us sleep. Suspicion of Gollum that night. They work northward. Next day, foot falls on the rock. Frodo sends Sam ahead and hides behind a rock-using ring. Gollum appears. Frodo, overcome with sudden fear, flies, but Gollum pursues. They come to a cliff rather lower and less sheer than that behind. In dread of Gollum, they begin to climb down. Okay, so what do we see about the concept here, right? Yeah, Stephen, uh good. Thank you for catching that confirmation that Frodo does have wings, right? See, it is proven there. Frodo, just like Balrogs, uh ha- clearly has has uh, has wings. Um one element here. This is made more of a chase scene, right? Um Gollum is pursuing them. Gollum is tracking them. And there's the reference in the published text to, you know, Sam asking Frodo if he saw those eyes again, right? So Gollum is hanging about, but in the published text, Gollum is merely lurking. He's following them. He's dogging their footsteps. He's, uh, again, he's It's. He's not, but he's, there's, this is not a high-speed chase. He's right there. They see him at their... At, at at their camp at night, they did this. You know, in the again in the published text, this happened in the Anduin too. He's been right with them the whole time. This is not a, this is not a Gollum in hot pursuit. He's finally caught up with us, kind of situation. Um, so the idea that this that Gollum is more actively chasing them and catching up, and Frodo at least is running away, um, is part of this this initial concept. That is sort of the relationship if you want to call it that, between Gollum and Frodo, starts off on a very different footing, right? Um, Gollum is dangerous, right? Um, He's dangerous, but he's like a dangerous nuisance. Um, They're like, he's plaguing their steps, right? But if they see him, they don't run away, right? He's not a, he's not a, a th- that kind of threat, exactly. Um, so it's interesting to me that he was originally that the first, the dynamic between Gollum and Frodo in the initial stage is Gollum as pursuing monster and Frodo running in fear from Gollum, right? Running before the pursuing Gollum. Um, and yeah, uh, could it be the Ring amplifying his fear of Gollum, pushing him to put it on? Quite possibly, right? And we've certainly seen that kind of pattern uh, in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and the emphasis, you know, Tolkien having uh, emphasized using Ring here, right, um, is suggestive, Tara, right? That maybe, uh, uh, you know, he's been tempted or pushed into using the Ring uh, by his fear of Gollum, um, which may therefore be being emphasized by or even have its source in the ring. That does seem to be possible, though, again, we're not, it's pretty indirect, you know, so it's hard to draw that conclusion very firmly, but it would fit. But again, to me, the thing that, the kind of the broader thing that's that's interesting about that is just, that's the way their relationship works, right? That's the way that the, the dynamics are between them, Um Gollum is somebody that Frodo runs away from when he sees them, that he's just hoping won't catch up with them. Because it it turns things around pretty differently. Right? When, uh, um, when they finally catch him uh, and when he's forced to make the promise. Let me see if I can be more explicit about that. In the published text... Gollum is not a direct threat to the two of them. They're not worried he's going to physically assault them. He might try to sneak up and throttle them in their sleep if they're not careful. Right? Which is why they set a watch. But, um, they... Again, in the published text, he's not a physical threat. He's not just going to assault them. And if he popped out of the bushes, they wouldn't run away. Um... In other words, in the published text, the power dynamic, Frodo is in charge. right? Frodo and Sam are more powerful than Gollum is. So he's dangerous because he could betray them, right? Um, or he might catch them in a vulnerable moment and do some harm to them. But Frodo has a power advantage over Gollum to start with. So when they capture Gollum and... Uh, put the rope on him and Frodo makes him promise, it doesn't change, right? Frodo is in command all the way through the question like the nature of their relationship is changing from openly antagonistic he's trying to betray me and undermine me and and to uh, you are now, I am taking you in my service and under my protection right? Um, You're going to help me instead of hindering me Um, you're going to stop being a nuisance and start being some help right? But again, there's a a sort of a baseline consistency in the power dynamic. In the first version of the story, if he's like a scary monster that you run away from when he jumps out of the bushes, then the capture becomes a reversal, right? Now the pursuer is the servant. Uh, Now the one who had power over Frodo is now the one who is groveling and making the promises. And that puts that whole moment that moment of the taming, I think, um, on what is to me a very interestingly different footing, right? So, initial concept, Gollum is scarier, right? Sort of, uh, he's a bigger threat in that sense. Also, I think when you are running away from a scary monster, I'm not a professional, I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I would think that that would be a fairly bad time to attempt some unexpected rock climbing Um, when you're actually running away from something that is scaring you. But um, anyway, Stephen, I don't think that we're implying that Frodo is going to leave Sam when he changes the we to I should have left the company. But Frodo is still early on in his mission here, and he is still kind of wishing he tried to get away without Sam. right? Uh, And he's still kind of wishing that he had made it. Right, that he had successfully uh, gotten away from Sam. He wishes that Sam weren't with him because he's bringing Sam into danger, and he didn't want to bring any of his friends into danger with him. Right, so I think it is merely him saying that. So it's interesting that 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 cha- Tolkien's first impulse is to say we should have left the company, and then he's like, "Oh no, wait, that's not Frodo's plan A." Right, Frodo is still kind of resisting the fact that uh, Sam should have come with him. Right, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Stephen, oh, you're thinking of when Frodo uses Sam as bait. And then Frodo sends Sam ahead and hides behind a rock using the ring. I guess he's, he's I guess he's using Sam as bait there. I hadn't really thought of that. <laughs> uh, and so when Gollum shows up and he, Frodo then runs away, uh, they're abandoning Sam. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Maybe. It's a little harder to understand. Is he running away with Sam? Is he running away without Sam? Um... Uh... Yeah. No, that's a great point, Steve. I hadn't even been thinking that through. You're right. That if he's sent Sam on ahead and then instead of doing what he meant to do, which was presumably pounce on Gollum or whatever, or follow him at least or something, instead he runs away. He's got to be running in a different direction than Sam went on ahead, right? So he's leaving Sam behind. Um... He's drawing Gollum after him, presumably, right? And we know that Gollum is pursuing, so it's possible, Stephen, to put a kind of a better spin on that. But it's a, that's, that's a weird moment, I think, and there's no, there's no two ways about that. All right. Christopher points out the letters in which Tolkien talks about how much trouble he was having with this, right? Um, and it's really fun to kind of think when you read in the published text the frustration that Frodo feels about like how are we going to get down from these hills Uh, and it's it's, to me sort of doubly fun to think about you know, Frodo is speaking Tolkien's own frustration right? How am I going to get them down from these hills? Um, And of course they end up being abandoned in the hills for a year and a half. Uh, Anyway when we realize that we have a rope right, we'll come back to the backpack issue later on my favorite thing, but anyway uh, when we realize we have a rope, we have to figure out how to use it, right, so Frodo has a, a really simple plan that would not be much good, said Frodo, you down and me up or the other way, is there nothing to make an end fast to up here what, said Sam, and leave, the, and leave all handy for that golem Well, said Frodo, so Sam does not want to just tie the rope to a stump and then climb down it, because that would leave the rope all handy for Gollum. So he thinks of that immediately in the original text. Well, said Frodo, after some thought, I'm going down with the rope on, and you're going to hold on to the end up here. But I am only going to use the rope for a precaution. I am going to see if I can find a way down that I can use without a rope. Then I climb up with your help, and then you go down with the rope, and I follow. How's that? Sam scratched his head. I don't like it, Mr. Frodo, he said, but it seems the only thing to do. Pity we didn't think out this rock climbing business before we started. Another quote, which could have been put straight into Tolkien's mouth. I'll have to stand down there staring and waiting to catch you. Do be careful. I love that image of Sam being down there, like, okay, all right, Mr. Frodo. Don't worry, I've got you. Um. Yeah, Stephen, this seems super complex, right? So Frodo's plan is he's going to climb down with a rope. And then he's going to climb back up. And then Sam is going to go down. He's going to lower Sam down on the rope. And then Sam is going to keep the rope. And then Frodo's going to climb down again without the rope. So the simplest way to get down the cliff is to climb up and down like three times, right? Um. Not a simple plan, right um yeah, and Nancy, you're right the kind of the hobbitry of frodo and Sam is is kind of creeping in and it stays there's there's, there's we get we can see some of the sort of rye exchange between them, right, especially on Sam's part as he's pretty grumbly at this point in the published text um <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's. It's complicated. Yeah, Mike, it does remind me of one of those jokes about the, yeah, involving a, a goat and a rowboat and a wolf, right? And how you can't leave the wolf and the, and the goat alone or else the wolf will eat the goat, right? So how can you get everybody across with the, yeah, it does sound exactly like that kind of problem. And I'm not sure this is the simplest uh, sort of solution. Um, bigger picture here, though. the fun thing is to watch this and remember how he's going to solve the problem, right? It's going to get solved. And how's he going to solve it? Simple, right? Make the rope come to Sam when he calls, right? Um, the The mere fact that Sam never thought about leaving the other end of the rope tied up at the top until they're both safely down is not Difficult, right? I mean that's easy to believe. That sort of works pretty well. But but here's the here's the bigger point that I would make, right? Tolkien's first approach to this question as he's trying to work out the story is one hundred percent practical. Right? He's not he doesn't seem to be thinking much about sort of the bigger story or th- you know, larger themes or anything like that at all. Right, He's just thinking there's a logistical problem. We have two hobbits on top of a cliff, and they need to get down. They've got one rope, and there's somebody pursuing them, so they don't want to leave a rope behind them. And how do they manage it? Right, And he seems to be almost brainstorming ways in which their descent could be managed. In the end, the solution that he goes with is simpler in one sense, right? In that it doesn't involve anybody going up and down the cliff three times. But it does... um, But it does... add an extra and strange wrinkle, right? He adds some magic into the situation, right? And that not only marvelous element... Right? The idea that the rope might be, in fact, a magic rope, in some sense. Um, though, of course, that's not the word that they use in, in, uh, in Lorien about it. Um, but also, the sort of touchingly tender affection for the rope that Sam feels, right? That, uh, that uh, wonderful... I love that Sam doesn't say something like, It came when I called upon the name of Galadriel right? That's not what he says, right? He says, I think it came when I called, right? Oh, man. Does it get more adorable than that? But anyhow, um, in other words, think of the, the final version has much more character development. Um, so we get more of Sam's character. We get more of this sort of exploration of elf magic. We get more of this sense of you know, the doom and fate of their quest and things that, like, things are gonna, you know, think of the the hope and faith issues that Sam and Frodo have, Sam especially, you know, in the final leg through Mordor, right? Um, it's, um, those ideas are gonna bubble through to the surface. But once again, we see, as we've seen before, that's not where Tolkien starts, right? That's not what he begins with. He doesn't begin with Sam and his beloved magic elf rope, right? He begins with two hobbits on a cliff, and I have no idea how I'm going to get them down. And that's all he's thinking, is how do I get them to the bottom of the hill, right? Um, yeah. Okay. First he lowered his pack by the rope. Then he cast it loose. He was left alone at the top. this is Frodo, of course, having gone down, come back up, dropped Sam down, and now he chucks it off, or he lowers his own pack and then chucks it off. At that moment, there was a great clap of dry thunder overhead, and the sky grew dark. The storm was coming up the Emmon wheel on its way to Rohan and to the Hornburg far away, where the riders were at bay. He heard Sam's cry from below, but could not make out the words, nor see Sam's pointing hands, but something made him look back. "'There, not far away on a rock behind and overlooking him, was a black figure, "'whose glimmering eyes like distant lamps were fixed on him. "'Unreasoning fear seized him for a moment, for after all it was Gollum there. "'It was not a hole, something or other. "'And he had sting in his belt, and Mithril beneath his jacket, "'but he did not stop to think of these things. "'He stepped over the edge, which for the moment frightened him less, "'and began to climb down. "'Haste seemed to aid him, and all went well until he came to the bad place.' The end, right? And that's where he weaves it for a while. Um, in the bad place, uh, Frodo's. F- so the darkness and fear that comes over Frodo with the rising up of the storm and everything um, on the cliff face in the published text has never has anything to do with Gollum, right? Notice how Tolkien will eventually replace Frodo's, I'm tempted to say, mere fear of Gollum, right, for the, like, influence of the Nazgûl and everything else, right? Um, But initially, it's Gollum, and he, Frodo, is so afraid of Gollum, unreasoning fear he experiences upon the sight of that black figure with eyes like distant lamps fixed on him, right? Even, and, and, The narrator goes out of his way to point out he has sting at his side and mithril beneath his jacket, right? He's wearing impenetrable armor, and he's got a magic sword, and Gollum is unarmed and unarmored. Um, Frodo could totally take him, but it doesn't matter. He doesn't think about that, instead he just runs for the cliff. Again, not a good plan, I think. Um... Uh, No, Tony, this is not the same relative timeline. Uh, Christopher Tolkien, who loves this stuff, I have to admit, it's another one of those things that I, I, I totally, I am sure if I were doing the work that Christopher were doing, if I had, if I were editing this text as Christopher is, which first of all would have probably driven me mad trying to interpret Tolkien's handwriting, um, I love that we got the graphic of the page of the manuscript there um, in the description of this stuff, where you could see, you know, Christopher sort of showing us exactly how bad Tolkien's handwriting was. Did you look at that? Did you try to compare it side by side with the text? I'm telling you, it is not simple trying to figure out what it was that he said there. But anyhow, uh, I'm sure if I were editing the text, I too would have a really fun time going through and trying to piece together the relative chronologies and how Tolkien is shifting it. And when, you know, when he writes a note in the margin, like, you know, insert day, like when that happened, when Tolkien wrote that and how it shifted. So the stuff that he does with the chronology is really cool and really interesting. I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot because it, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see Tolkien reconciling these things, but... Um, I don't know. Seem to me not quite as much there to talk about as far as uh, as far as this discussion is concerned. Um, but yeah, Tony he does make an adjustment uh, so that the uh, Frodo and Sam are on the Emmon wheel. Like at, they're descending the cliff when right after Théoden leaves Edoras and is still going towards Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep instead of it being the same storm. Anyway, um. So, Frodo is just terrified of Gollum. That, again, that initial, um, that initial power dynamic, right? Gollum having this kind of power over Frodo through the fear that Frodo feels of him, right? Um, is unchanged, right? Emphasized, if anything. Small side footnote. How many of you were surprised to hear Gollum called a black figure? Right? That is one of those really hardcore tests of can you resist the visual images of the film? Right. Um... Peter Jackson make makes Gollum pallid, right? He's, he's all, like, grayish-white, right? Um, and it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, he looks like somebody who would look, who had lived, who had not seen the sun for 500 years, right? And had, uh, but that's not how Gollum is described, right? In The Hobbit, he's described as darker than the darkness. He's black. Gollum is not... Pale, white skinned. He's black skinned, not brown skinned, black skinned. He's like a shadow. Uh, he's a piece of darkness. Um. So yeah, that's uh, that's not a change. That's not a change. But yeah, so it's um. Uh, but again, it's one of those things. I know that the the visual of Peter Jackson's Gollum. You know, it's hard to get Andy Serkis's Gollum out of your head. Right. But that is not consistent with the text. Again, I, I don't I don't object to that change. I don't, I don't you know, I don't complain of it. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, 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 I like it. Um, what they uh, uh, what they did in the movie. But it's a, But it's an alteration. Right. Uh, no, no, uh, Tim. I don't think he's suggesting that the black figure with eyes like distant lamps. You could read that as a kind of silhouette. It's possible. But Gollum is very explicitly black skinned, like his person is black uh in the hobbit um that's very that's very plain um yes exactly stephen uh um are there black kingfishers in the pools of mirkwood right um or a black squirrel yeah, um that's why they're talking about the escapes of Merkwood. Because they saw something up the trees, and they're not sure what it was, but what the only thing they are sure of is that it was black, like the creatures who live in Mirkwood. Yeah, exactly. No, Gollum. There's no question. Um, it's not a. It's not a doubtful issue. Gollum is definitely black. His person is definitely black. Um, just wanted to draw attention to that because it's something that a lot of people, even people who know the text really well, I. F- I think it might be one of the uh, most—of all of the things that are, you know, altered from the text in the Peter Jackson films, I think that might be sort of the most subtle one in the sense of how many people don't even realize that it's a change, right? Um, Most of the other changes that Jackson made, you know, good Tolkien readers— are fully aware of the fact that it's not what Tolkien said, right? Even if, whether they like it or not. But, um, um, but many people miss this fact. Um, anyhow. Okay. So we're going to leave Frodo in a cliffhanger and we're going to talk about Sam. Time to do Sam passages because they're awesome. Okay. Sam's comments at the beginning. Ah, said Sam, growing bolder, it seems. That is when we, they saw the eyes at night. I heard him, too, though I saw no eyes. He's after us still. Can't shake him off, no how. Curse the slinking varmint. Gollum. I'd give him Gollum if I could get my hands on his neck. As if we hadn't enough trouble in front, without him hanging on behind. Um. Let's pause for a second there. You know the one word that really jumped out at me most—oops, sorry. You know the, the one word that most jumped out at me in that passage? Um, yeah, varmint. Varmint. Uh, everybody knows what a varmint is, right? Right? Mike, you've 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 got it. If 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 you're thinking of uh, Yosemite Sam, then uh, (laughs) Yosemite Sam wise, then you've got it. Yeah, varmint. What a word, right? But it's an important word, uh, and I think a really revealing word. And actually, I kind of wish that Sam had still called him a varmint in the published text. Um, Yeah, a varmint is a it's vermin, right? It's a pest. Sam is a gardener, right? One of the things he 's going to do is he 's going to dispose of varmints right when there are critters who are mucking things up right critters that are that are eating the vegetables or wrecking things right um you 've got a like exactly a nuisance animal that 's a good way to to describe it mike um you've um uh, you 've got to um I mean, if you're a farmer, you've got to be prepared to deal mercilessly with varmints, right? Varmints are a fact of life, and it's them or you. I mean, again, remember like the, the, the hobbits in the fo- you know the farmers in the forest, right? Farmers and the varmints can't be friends either, right? Um, that Sam thinks of um, that Sam thinks of Gollum as a varmint. Right, he's like a weasel. He's like a, uh, like a raccoon, uh, sneaking in and, uh, uh, and and stealing the corn. Right. <laughs> uh, can I uh, can I give you a little pro tip? If you grow your own corn, uh, a really good way to protect your corn from raccoons. <laughs> this was my grandfather's invention. You know what he did? He had an electric fence around the 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 corn, and I was looking at this one day, and I'm like, you know, Grandpa, I, the raccoons can just walk right under that fence. Like, wh- I, wh- How does that fence stop them? And he looks at me and says, At night, I wrap bacon around it. <laughs> So the raccoons bite the bacon on the live fence. I heard one one night running, screaming off into the distance. And I'm like, dang, okay. See, I get, you're a farmer. You got to find ways to deal with varmints, right? Um, when you think of Sam's animosity to Gollum, right? Um, he is against Gollum from the very beginning. And it's one of the things that has to be, in any reading of the text, a uh, uh, a sort of qualifier, right? Um, I mean, it's hard not to read the two towers and say, Sam is awesome, but he's really intolerant of Gollum, right? He's really impatient with Gollum. Here's Frodo trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, trying to, you know, can he be redeemed? Can he be healed? Gandalf was hoping for it. Frodo seems to be hoping for it. And Sam is having none of it, right? Um, And it's hard not to see this as kind of a negative, uh, uh, a negative mark on Sam's character, of course, culminating in the tragic moment um, when Sam wakes up and rejects Gollum in the very moment of Gollum's near repentance. But, um, anyway... That was one word, varmint, um, really kind of changes that for me in some ways, or at least kind of recontextualizes Sam's attitude, right? Uh, now, again, it's not to say that it makes it more handsome. I mean, Gollum is not just a varmint, right? He's a he is he is you know to use C.S. Lewis's word now, just like uh, just like. Frodo and Sam are right. So, to for him to look at Gollum and think that he is to Gollum as you know, farmer is to raccoon is not, um, is not correct, right? That is not a right way of looking at things. Um, so again, I'm not saying that it makes everything better, but it at least gives me another sort of frame of reference, if you see what I mean, another model for understanding. How talk? I mean, his protectiveness of his master, his assessment. Um, uh, Mike, as you say, that he knows that Gollum is going to bite the hand that feeds him. Um, Tony, you're, I mean, you're right. He he thinks that Sam is going to betray, or that he thinks that Go, Sam thinks that Gollum is going to betray them, and he's he turns out to be perfectly correct about that. Um, yeah, though, again, I'd qualify that with saying, and he partially helped that to happen, right? By the way, you know, would Gollum have betrayed them had Sam not acted like that in the first place? It, You know, there was at least more of a chance that he wasn't gonna. But anyway, um, you know, whether it would have happened or not, who knows. But anyhow, um, the word varmint really just kind of helps me at the beginning to see how he views him. And also, interesting... In thinking back to Frodo, you know, what we were just seeing about Frodo's fear of Gollum, right? The power relationship between Frodo and Gollum. Gollum has all the power. Frodo's terrified of Gollum, right? He's armed. He's armored. He's running away. The instant he sees Gollum, he's freaked out by Gollum. Um, Sam, not freaked out. Sam is annoyed, right? Curse the slinking. He's a slinking varmint, right? Um... Uh, Sam, far from running away when, as soon as he sees him, wishes he could get his hands on him, right? Um, the problem is he's elusive and hard to keep out, like a varmint, right? Um, several of you are talking about the uh, the fact of varmint being an Americanism. I mean, the fact that I, too, might associate the word varmint with Yosemite Sam uh, from Looney Tunes. Um, certainly, I mean, it sure sounds American when yosemite Sam says it uh can somebody look that up somebody got the o e d or something is varmint in the o e d please somebody tell me that the word varmint is in the o e d uh and if it is uh where does it come is it is it American slang originally um, is this like the kind of slang that uh um, uh that uh Oh, I'm blanking. Must be getting late. Yes, it's getting late. Um... Oh, my goodness. Where's my brain? Um... Uh, uh... Dracula. The Texan. Uh, Quincy. Oh, man. Complete blank. It sounds like the kind of slang that Quincy Morris might well have brought over to England, right? Um... Okay, Tom, you've got its first use in 1539, huh? Wow. Variation of vermin. Okay, yeah. All right, 1539, that makes it English, right? So Yosemite Sam is the one who borrowed it. Yeah, he says it's North American. Bet they popularized it in North America. But if it's attested... In 16th century English. See, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Figures. See, this is exactly the kind of mistake that Tolkien is unlikely to just make a mistake about. Right? I mean, you had to know that it had to have its origin in, like, the 16th century at least. Right at latest, that is to say, right? You think Tolkien is going to use a word in his book that has its origin in English later, or you know, later than than uh, than sixteen hundred? Come on now, (laughs) right? Very rarely, very rarely. That's why tobacco gets the gets the gets the boot. Um. <laughs> but anyway that's, that's why we, that's literally why he doesn't use the word tobacco in uh, uh that's why it's why he shifted to 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 to, to pipe weed. um <laughs> anyway anyway um but um yeah so I have no doubt that varmint was probably used more widely in North America but uh interesting okay anyhow all right uh oh it didn't do the second half. If only I dared to use the ring, muttered Frodo. Maybe I could catch him then. Don't you do that, master, said Sam. Not out up here. He'd see you. Not meaning Gollum, either. I feel all naked on the east side, if you understand me. Stuck up here on the skyline with naught but a big flat bog between us and that shadow over yonder. He looked hurriedly over his shoulder towards the east. We've got to get down off it, he said, and today we're going to get down off it somehow. Okay. First. Notice that you may recognize this statement. Of course, Christopher talks about this, that, you know, this same sentiment, um, the feeling of nakedness, there being nothing between them and that, you know, that that that, that the, the eye over yonder, you know, the, the, there's an eye over there, um, and feeling exposed on that cliff and we have to get down. Frodo says that in the published text, right? So this speech, slightly altered, is going to be kept um, and it's going to be given to Frodo. But that's itself a really interesting thing. Look at the two things that for, that Tolkien attributes to Sam in this paragraph. First, perception, right? spiritual discernment, it's Sam who perceives the eye of Mordor looking at them, right? And forebodes that they had best get the heck off that cliff, right? That it's not safe for them. Um, it's not safe, and that Frodo would be seen, especially if he put the ring on here, right? Because they're exposed. So the, the not only perception, but insight that Sam has here, um, is really interesting. The second is leadership. We've got to get down off it. And today we're going to get down off it somehow. Really, Sam? Okay. Right. Sam's in charge. Right. Sam is saying, this is how it's going to be. We've got to do this and we will do this. And I, you know, I got, um, both really interesting impulses. Right, both interesting things that Tolkien ascribes to Sam. Again, he softens both of those things. He makes Sam not take that kind of leadership, make that kind of leadership statement. It's Frodo through the ring that he's wearing, right through the, the sort of the awareness of Sauron that the ring gives him who I mean I'm not saying it doesn't make sense for him to shift that to Frodo. It totally does. But what interests me is that his first impulse is to give both of those things to Sam. Um, Yeah, interesting. Mike says that Sam is the anti-Watson. Yeah, I see what you mean, right? Uh, uh, He's the sidekick who is not just obtuse in following along, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then my... Okay. Nay, Mr. Frodo, me first, cried Sam. Why so eager, said Frodo. Do you want to show me the way? Not me, said Sam, but it's only sense. Have the one most like to slip lowest. I don't want to slip, but I don't want to slip and come down atop you and knock you off. But I'd do the same to you. Then you'll have something soft to fall on, said Sam, throwing his legs over the edge and turning his face to the wall. (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) <laughs> then you'll have something soft to fall on um the the humor the self deprecation you know that he's not just fretting you know he's joking about it right the 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 hobbitry nancy right i mean this is uh it's just this is this is this is just lovely right um he's joking he's being self deprecating but he's also being self sacrificing right that uh it's not just that he would rather not be the one to, you know, again, the published text, he's going to say, uh, uh, it's just sense, put the one lowest is his likeliest to fall, right? So that he's just d- wants to make sure that he doesn't take Frodo with him because he feels he's all pessimistic in the book, in the, in the published text, right? And he's feeling sure that he's going to fall. Sam, in the published text, throughout this whole passage, is just kind of wet blanketish until we get to the rope, right? Um, and then his his faith in the rope sort of flares up, uh, and changes the attitude, changes the dynamic from him just being kind of uh, uh, kind of a kind of a downer uh, as he kind of is in the conversation in the published text. Not so in the first draft, right? Uh, again, not only is he just not just being negative, but I I love that element. It's not just put put him lowest as likely as to fall, but. Hey, even if you do take me down with you, then I will be under and, and I'll give you a soft place to fall. It's uh, again, charming, self-deprecating, but also genuinely self-sacrificing and everything as well. I just, uh, I loved Sam even more in these passages. My favorite Sam point is the business about his pack. So, remember, Sam is down the cliff all right, it's starting to go down. He actually does get down a little ways, and Sam has to, or Frodo has to rescue him with his belt, or tries to rescue him with his belt, and it's not long enough. And then he remembers that he's got a rope in his pack. And Frodo says, but you've got your pack on your back. And Sam says, no, I ought to have, but I don't. It's with you. Now, I have to admit, when I first read this, I was briefly confused. I thought that Sam was confessing that when he started to go down the cliff, he forgot his pack up top. Like, oh, I left my pack up there. So you're up there, so it's with you. But no, he actually meant he's wearing a backpack, but he's wearing Frodo's backpack, not his own, right? Um, And so here is his explanation of the backpack switching thing. Numpate and ninny hammer, he muttered. Well, now you're back, said Frodo, laughing with relief. You can explain this business about the packs. Easy, said Sam. We got up in the dim light this morning, and you just picked mine up. I noticed it was going I noticed it, and was going to speak up, when I noticed that yours was a tidier sight heavier than mine. I reckoned you'd been carrying more than your share of tackle and whatnot since I set off in such a hurry, so I thought I'd take a turn. And I thought less said less argument. Well meant cheek," said Frodo. "But you've been rewarded for the well meaning anyway." They sat for a while, and the gloom grew, gla- and the g- gloom grew greater. Um, an interesting check. What percentage of the time that Tolkien uses the word "gloom" does he alliterate it with something else, with at least another G word, if not uh, another G L word, like "gleam" in the "gloom"? Anyway. Uh, the gloom grew greater. Numpate, said Sam, suddenly slapping his forehead. How long's that rope, I wonder? Yeah, should have remembered the rope before we even tried to go down. Um, I kind of like numpate, actually. Ninny Hammer's better, I agree, but numpate is kind of good, too. Um, this is a kind of an unnecessary detail, and of course is going to get totally circumvented when we have Sam having pre-packed his pack so that it's all ready to go when he runs after Frodo uh, from the breaking of the Fellowship. Um, but, of course, it makes sense that his pack would be lighter, because Frodo had fully packed for his trip, and Sam had not. Um, but this was just, to me, another lovely example of Sam's servant spirit, right? Um, the fact that it... so I mean, sort of... Both elements of this scene, right? Element number one, that Sam is wearing Frodo's pack, and the reason he's wearing Frodo's pack instead of his own is because it's the heavier one, right? So he has, in secret, switched packs, or permitted the packs to be switched, uh, because he wants to take more of the load for Frodo's sake. Uh, Just a a lovely little, very small, understated piece of humility uh, and devotion on Sam's part. But, of course, the second element is the really important one, which is, as Frodo points out, the well-meaning element right, of his, uh, of his action, the well-meaningness of his action, has been rewarded. Because Sam did that small act of humility and service, his pack was on Frodo's back, and thus was Frodo able to throw him the rope and rescue him from the cliff. Had Sam uh, not done that, right? Had Sam instead that morning said, hey, Mr. Frodo, that's my pack. Here, you take your heavy pack and give me mine back, please, right? Had he done that, he would have had the rope on his back and he would not have been able to be rescued. So that his, his, his humility serves to save his own life. He is Sort of directly rewarded for his attitude in that way, um, and you know, like I said, I don't, I don't necessarily miss this scene in the published text, but I like it, uh, and I, I, really like, uh, I really like how that worked. Okay, uh, getting towards the end, but let's keep going because I am almost caught up, and that is super exciting. Um, we are down to the flashback. Whew, I'm so relieved. I made a reference to this in last night's class. I said we were going to talk about it tonight, and then as soon as I did, I'm like, and that's, that's like slide 16, so who knows if we're going to get to it, but by golly, we have. So you may re- this is of course in the taming scene, uh, when Frodo is looking at Gollum, and he has that flashback to Gandalf's words uh, from chapter 2. "'No,' said Frodo, "'we must kill him right out, Sam, if we do anything. "'But we can't do that, not as things are. "'It's against the rules. "'He's done us no harm.' "'But he means to, meant to. "'I'll take my word,' said Sam. "'I dare say,' said Frodo, "'but that's another matter.' "'Then he seemed to hear a voice out of the past "'saying to him, "'Even Gollum I fancy may have his uses before all's over.' "'Yes, yes, maybe,' he answered. "'But anyway, I can't touch the creature.' I wish he could be cured. He's so horribly wretched. Sam stared at his master, who seemed to be talking to someone else not there. Um, Okay. So, and then, of course, Christopher reminds us that in Chapter 2, what Gandalf had said was, yes, he deserves to die, and I don't think he can be cured before he dies, yet even Gollum might prove useful for good before the end. Um. So, the, the initial flashback. Point one about the flashback is that initially the flashback is to something that actually is in the previous scene, right? To Gandalf's actual words about him not being here. So notice Frodo's flashback is more than just a quote, right? Even Gollum I fancy may have his uses before all's over, which is only an approximate quotation of Gandalf, but Gandalf does say that, right? And yet we can see him mulling over more of that conversation right? Um, I wish he could be cured for instance Um, but of course most importantly the pity that he has for Gollum I wish he could be cured, he's so horribly wretched, right? that insight, that perception, that pity that he feels for Gollum um, seeing how miserable how wretched he is Um, now he understands what he didn't understand when he was talking to to, to Gollum Gandalf about Gollum in Chapter 2. But um, notice a couple things here, right? First, may have his uses, right? Both Gandalf in Chapter 2, and again that's w- written way back in Chapter 2, which is now quite some time ago, not just some space ago in the book, but quite some time has passed since uh, Tolkien wrote even his mo- more recent version of, uh, of chapter two. Um, but the emphasis from the from the beginning of the story is on Gollum's usefulness, that he's going to have a role to play. And that his role is not just going to be as an antagonist, right? He's not just going to be an enemy or an obstacle to be overcome. Um, as Gandalf says, he might prove useful for good before the end. And it's his usefulness that uh, Frodo flashes back to specifically. Um, in other words, that this makes Frodo's flashback scene to be focused on two things primarily, right? First, his pity, his, the genuine pity that he now feels for Gollum as he did not earlier on, you know back in his own sitting room. and secondly, this acknowledgement of Gandalf's statement that Gollum is part of the plan in some sense, right? That there is some destiny that Gollum has which could make him useful for good. Those are the two elements that Frodo is ruminating on and thinking back to chapter two about. Then we have a moment which is really, really awesome, and that is the revising of his flashback. Deserves death? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life can you give that to them? Then be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Maybe the enemy will get him. Maybe not. Even Gollum may do some good willy-nilly before the end. By the way, willy-nilly is a very old English uh, uh, saying. Um, That's... uh, I remember coming across that in uh, Langland's Pierce Plowman. Uh, It's an early 14th century uh, allegorical Middle English poem. Um, And uh, finding it really funny. Will he, nil he. um, Whether he will or whether he will not. um, Will he or, yeah, will he or will he not is literally what willy-nilly translates to or what the origin of it is. Um, But anyway. um, Which is why I we tend to use the expression willy nilly if anybody who does use the expression willy nilly um in modern english which is increasingly unusual but when people do use it they tend to mean like in this like sort of reckless runaway fashion right like uh to run wi- willy-nilly through something, right? Just meaning, like, not paying attention to what's going on and being reckless. It tends to be, at least how I often hear the phrase used. But again, the, what it means is whether he will or whether he will not. Right. Uh, with his, his will or against his will, one way or the other, this thing is happening. This thing is happening willy-nilly. Will he nil-he. Um, so... Um, anyway, that's Gollum's relationship to doing good, right? Some good is going to happen willy-nilly. Um, it might not be Gollum's idea, but it's going to, it's going to happen. He's going to be, he's going to be an instrument. This passage, of course, uh, a favorite passage, a, uh, um, you know, this is, uh, is going to become a very, a very quotable passage in the published text, of course. Really interesting to see. It originates here, right? This is the flashback as Frodo has it. But it's, it is composed when Frodo is having the... This, this The origin of this passage is in The Taming of Sméagol, And it then has to be retconned back into Chapter 2, right? So the points that were at issue back in Chapter 2, namely Bilbo's pity and whether that was a good idea... Right. And remember, the whole thing about he may be of use before the end makes sense as an explanation to Frodo of why the pity was a good idea. Right. He's still got a role to play. His destiny is to be involved in this. And Gandalf has a sense that it's going to be for good. He's going to accomplish something. Uh, he will be used for good, even if it's not his plan. Um, and that's why, you know, that's that just just goes to show that having pity on him was the right thing to do. Right. Here we have more. Now, when he is thinking through that whole concept in uh, uh, in the context of the taming of Smeagol, now he he sees it differently, and so Gandalf gets this different and fuller speech, right? Um, and we have these really deep um, these really deep principles, right? I dare say he does deserve death. Many that live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give that to them? Um, even the very wise cannot see all ends. These are deep philosophical waters that Gandalf is in here. It's uh, still along the same general lines, right? Of, uh, you know, gone may do some good willy-nilly before the end. He still says that. Um, but... Uh, uh, be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety uh, is now a much bigger and more thoughtful principle here um, but it's born here it's born when Frodo actually confronts Gollum, and this experience that he has because notice that the dealing out death in the name of just, of of justice right um, is now relevant. When Frodo himself is in the position of judge and executioner, right he's just said, "If we kill him, we have to kill him outright, so it's not just now that I look at him, I pity him i'm I'm feeling spontaneous pity in looking at him. I mean that is what's happening, but it's not just that right this the whole thought process that Frodo has at this time is should I off him right should I stab?" gollum to death right here right should i stab the vile creature put his eyes out kill it right and i'm quoting the hobbit bilbo's thought when he finds gollum blocking the tunnel um and he decides no i can't and, but it's gandalf's it's the recollection of gandalf bringing this up um that uh, uh that that really makes it that really that really brings it forward. So, uh, just just a really a really fun moment to see that the flashback uh, you could you could say Jennifer that in chapter two, uh, uh, Ganoff is having a flash forward there, right? Uh, yeah, he's having a, he's having an anticipatory he, he's having a prescient flashback uh, to what he's going to be remembered to be saying later on. Absolutely. Okay. And last. When Gollum said, Smeagol will swear on the precious, there followed, both in initial drafting and in the manuscript, Frodo stepped back. On the precious, he said? Oh, yes! And what will he swear? To be very, very good, said Gollum. Then crawling to Frodo's feet. This was changed at once, again both in draft and manuscript, too. Okay, pause a second. First impulse. What's his first impulse? In drafting and manuscript the very first thing that Tolkien thinks is that when Frodo hears him say on the Precious, Frodo's like, yeah, that'll work, right? Yeah, oh yeah, on the Precious, great idea. Right, so that Frodo's first thought is to exploit the power of the Precious over Gollum, right? Because, I mean, he wasn't a pickle, Frodo was. Right? How can he possibly? He he doesn't want to stab him to death. That seems like the wrong thing to do. So, what can you do? Right? What promise can he make that he can trust? Right? I mean, you, he can he can keep saying that he's he's gonna be good. Right? But why on earth would you believe this varmint? Right? Um, so the idea that Frodo's first response is to kind of latch onto it. Right? To be like, hey, okay. We can work with this. We can work with this. Swear on the precious. Yeah, yeah. If you swear on the precious, I can probably believe you, right? Understandable first impulse, but what a sort of charmingly simple view of the situation Frodo seems to have right away, right? But right, and and so very quickly, Tolkien changes it. Frodo stepped back on the precious. He asked, puzzled for a moment. He had thought that precious was Gollum's self that he talked to. Ah. On the precious, he said, with a disconcerting frankness that had already startled Sam. Draft text that surprised and alarmed Sam and still more Gollum. One ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. Would you commit your promises to that, Smeagol? Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. So, having first had the impulse to have Frodo be all about Swearing on the precious, right? Uh, finding this to be like, you know, the cutting the Gordian knot of his difficult situation, right? Um, having moved away from that response by Frodo, um, we have him be confused. And Stephen, I absolutely agree with you. There is perfectly sound justification for Frodo's confusion, right? Why should he be confused? Cause he's read The Hobbit, that's why, and in The Hobbit, the precious is himself. He's he doesn't mean the ring when he says precious, uh, at least not most of the time in The Hobbit. Um, and so and Stephen, of course, he would think that way, right? Cause what does he know about Gollum? He's read Bilbo's account, right? Frodo's read The Hobbit, so of course that's what he thinks. So we have. Frodo's cheerful and rapid willingness to exploit Gollum's connection with the Ring—we uh, have that replaced by—we um, have that replaced by his confusion, meaning he doesn't even realize; he has no idea the kind of relationship that Gollum has to the ring, right? He doesn't understand at all what Gollum, what the ring means to Gollum. Um, The extent to which the boundary line between Gollum himself and the ring, is he talking to the ring or is he talking to himself, right? Is there a difference between the ring and himself, right? The way in which Gollum's whole sense of self and identity, his whole world is wrapped up in the ring, Frodo has never gotten that at all, right? Um, and i kind of i I kind of like the puzzlement here because it shows that this idea is just the sort of the horror of gollum's existence it's part of the pity thing right the full like horror of Gollum's existence is just sort of sinking in to frodo here um now this this other passage I find a little confusing, i mean not the last bit. You know when he quotes the ring uh, 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 verse and then says, "Would you commit your promises to that, Sméagol?" Right. So far from the comparatively uncomplicated response he has the first time, the second time he's like, "Yeah," I'll, you know, he's like, "Well, you know, gosh, I think what you know, look before you leap, here, Sméagol." Right, so to speak. Um, would you commit your promises to to the to the? I mean, you you do know like what the precious is, right, and what it's like. Um, but it's the bit in the middle that I find kind of interesting. The disconcerting frankness that had already startled Sam. Okay, so I think he wrote first with the disconcerting frankness that surprised and alarmed Sam and still more Gollum. And then he changes it to the disconcerting frankness that had already startled Sam. I need your help. I'm not 100% sure I'm following here. What is the frankness? The ah on the precious. Is that it? Or is it the thing he says right after? One ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. Would you commit your promises to that? Which do you think, which of those two statements, as I assume it has to be one of those two, which of those two statements do you think is disconcertingly frank? The first one or the second one? Any thoughts? Any votes? You think it's the following one, Stephen? I can believe that. Um, if it's the second one that is Frank, it would be Frank in the sense of him speaking openly to Gollum about the fact that it's the Ring of Power, right? Um, spe- you know saying out loud, and to Gollum of all people, hey you know I'm carrying the Ring of Power right here that's Frank, right? Um, and I could see where that's disconcerting, that would be disconcerting Of course it's not like they're. it's a secret from Gollum of all people, right? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah um, So I can see that but see, I agree, Jennifer and uh, and uh, James Liebeck. You know, James says it really well. James says it feels like it. It should be the second one, like it should be the quoting of the ring verse and stuff that is disconcerting. Um, but he says that I. But I don't understand already. Yeah, and I agree that had already startled Sam. Um. Yeah, it, it, that really does make it sound like it's what he said before. That was disconcertingly frank. Um, ah, on the precious. I don't see how that's either frank or disconcertingly so, right? Um, is it because Frodo is speaking his thoughts out loud? Because he is being so transparent about his own thought process on the precious? Ah, on the Precious. Our good master is not supposed to talk like that? Is he supposed to be keeping his own counsel and just making out like he already understands everything? Because that's what, like, the master is supposed to be doing. And so it's disconcerting to Sam because he is sort of displaying or revealing the fact that he um, is, uh, you know, that, that he doesn't, uh, you know, that, that he doesn't understand. And, and, you know, that's the only way I can understand awe on the precious as being disconcertingly Frank. Um, Mike is wondering if maybe Sam is alarmed at how much Frodo can identify with or understand Smeagol, you know, and how quickly he sorts out the precious, the Preciouses. maybe, um, see, Tomas, I could see Sam being disconcerted at Frodo. Sam has already been disconcerted by Frodo talking to himself, right? Tomas is recalling, of course, the line back here, Sam stared at his master who seemed to be talking to someone else not there, right? That's disconcerting. But see, but Tomas, my problem is, that's not disconcerting because it's frankness, right? Frankness means to speak bluntly and openly something which someone might have expected to be concealed or or um or uh restrained right um, so yeah talking to somebody who isn't there is disconcerting but it's not disconcerting frankness that's disconcerting craziness right um yeah yeah um Sharon's wondering, is it frankness in the sense that Frodo seems confident and accepting of the deal that Gollum is offering? Um, Yeah, again, that's not quite frankness, no. I mean, it's gullibility, right? I mean, he could find, you know, Frodo's willingness to go along with Gollum disconcerting. Right, Disconcer- it, That would be disconcerting to Sam because he believes that Frodo is extremely wise, and yet he sees Frodo doing a thing which he feels to be foolish. Uh, so that would be a disconcerting experience. But, but again, frankness. It's not exactly about frankness, though. Um, yeah. John Caldwell says, maybe Sam fears Frodo will actually pull out the ring for Gollum to swear on. Um, maybe maybe yeah i don't know i mean i don't know i don't want to spend too much time trying to <clears throat> parse a phrase that tolkien's going to cut right uh you know and perhaps he cut it because it wasn't really clear what it was referring to and he was not succeeding in in expressing you know uh uh the thing that he was trying to express here but um Yeah, James, well, well. remember, James Liebach is recalling that in the published text, there is still a frankness issue, right? Remember, Gollum himself seems to cringe at the open speaking of the names, right, when Frodo says that he's going to Mordor and... uh, you know and he talks about the he openly talks about the enemy wanting the ring and 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 that he's trying he's trying to get to Mordor um that's disconcerting to everybody for Frodo just to be like okay hi Mr. Spy who's been following along and dogging our heels and everything and tracking us I'm going to tell you the whole plan right we're going to Mordor and I'm I've got the ring and I'm taking the ring to Mordor and it's all good um that's um disconcerting to Sam, and it seems to be disconcerting to Gollum in a different way because Gollum is so used to being devious and sideways and sneaking that the open-speaking of the just flat-out talking about this stuff seems to, uh, seems to bother him. Um, so... Yeah, so could this be... Could the disconcerting frankness that had already startled Sam be that? Or... James, to say that same thing in a different way, could that passage in the published text be a recollection of whatever that frankness was that uh, Tolkien is pointing to here in the draft and manuscript? That seems likely to me. That seems the likeliest thing I've heard. Though, again, it's not exactly the stuff right here in this passage. But, okay. All right. We are caught up, everybody. We have come to the end. Of the chapter assigned for today, we are zero slides behind. See, you guys were making fun of me, uh, not finishing my slides on the very first day, and we've been playing catch-up ever since there. But you see, I'm getting a little bit better at making up these schedules. wasn't quite so rosy in my schedule-making as I was when I did the Return of the Shadow. Uh, So, uh, not bad, right? Moving along. Okay, uh, so we'll continue for next time two more chapters uh, if I remember correctly but of course it's now super easy to look up on the new mythgard.org website if you've forgotten. Um, anyway so yeah so we'll do we'll be back uh, next week I'll be uh, I'll be here next week as normal. I'm not going to be traveling again for a little bit so I will see you guys next week for two more chapters. Thanks everybody. Bye now.